Thanks for tuning into the conversation here on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. The State Health Department is inviting the public to a series of meetings next week to talk about Red Hill. What are your concerns now that the military's timeline for defueling is being sped up? This morning, we talked to Kathleen Ho, Deputy Environmental Director, about this different approach uh, that officials seem to be taking when it comes to the fuel storage facility. Its focus remains uh, to defuel and close the World War II tank farm as quickly and safely as possible, and also to a push to remediate our aquifer. There will be back-to-back meetings at Moanalua High School. It will start with an in-person open house Monday afternoon from 3 to 7, and a more formal meeting of the Red Hill Advisory Committee, both online and in-person on Tuesday from 1 to 5 p.m. You may recall the legislature created the advisory committee about four years ago to deal with issues around fuel tanks here in Hawaii. Here's Kathleen Ho talking about the upcoming public meetings. We will have representation from the DOH, EPA, the Joint Task Force, the Navy Region Hawaii, Navy Facility Engineering System Command, the Defense Health Agency, and also the Board of Water Supply and Sierra Club will be participating in the open house. So we encourage everyone to come in and look at the presentations that each of these agencies will have regarding Red Hill. You know, we will be available to answer any questions that they may have on the progress of the defueling and remediation of the tanks and aquifer. And we're hoping that that will answer some of the questions moving into our meeting that will occur on Tuesday, June 6th, which is the Fuel Tank Advisory Committee. It will also be at Moanalua High School, but it will be at the Performing Arts Center. We encourage people, if they're not able to attend, to register online. That meeting will be held from 1 to 5. This is just a different approach to be able to allow the public to get more access and more information because I think the last time we had this meeting, it ran pretty long. Yeah, yeah, it did run really long. And what we're thinking is that if we give people access to our subject matter experts prior to the meeting, they will be able to ask questions and maybe those questions, you know, the questions that they may have had will have been answered. So it will give the public direct access to our subject matter experts and that they can hopefully answer any questions that they may have. And this open house approach, I know the military tried this last week. I found it to be very helpful because you could just ask any question you have to the staff there, you know, without having to go through a public affairs person. And it was just so much faster. So it's the same approach next week then? Yeah, it's the same approach. And we're hoping that people will come out and will be available to answer any questions regarding defueling, closure, and the aquifer remediation. So hopefully we'll see everyone out there on Monday, June 5th at Moanaloa High School cafeteria from 3 to 7. And, you know, in the last couple of weeks, the military has submitted, you know, additional reports the latest one was the plan to dismantle, I think, three pipeline systems. Where's DOH on, on that? So that's part of the closure plan. And so I think it's a good thing that they're talking about decommissioning the pipelines because, as you know, the Department of Health has been pretty clear that we want to render the tanks inoperable. And one way to do that is to remove the pipelines. 
And that has been a concern by many in the community that they're afraid that the next Secretary of the Navy, you know, or other high-ranking official with the Pentagon will change their mind about the future of Red Hill. We've heard, I think, our congressional team ask for reassurance that this thing is going to get shut down and not going to be reused. So the removal of that pipeline system will help that end. I understand that the Navy is about to also begin a series of drills leading up to the actual defueling in October just to make sure that this can be done safely. Correct. So next week on the 8th, they are going to be exercising a repacking drill. And, you know, the purpose of repacking the, the pipeline is to prevent any surges or air pockets when the actual defueling occurs. So as you may recall, previously they unpacked all the lines, and in order they did so in order to, re, to conduct the repairs of the pipeline so that we can begin to defuel. So they've unpacked, now they're going to repack so that the, the lines uh, will prevent any surging or any air pockets, and also to determine if, there's, if the seals are intact. They're very concerned about another leak, not just because of what it could do and, and you know how it could threaten the aquifer, but we're also talking about the safety of the personnel that will be involved as they start to do this operation. Sure. All of that, you know, all of these exercises is really to prevent uh, a disaster for both public health and the environment. Yes. Have you folks had a chance to talk to them directly about the extra safety precautions that will be taken in the event, you know, there's mist or fumes building up in that tunnel area, what safety precautions are being implemented now to make sure that if our federal firefighters are in there, if our if our contractors are in there, that they have a way to get out or a way to deal with that? Right. You know, there's other regulatory agencies overseeing this other than Department of Health. That is, the Department of Health is interested in the defueling in a uh, quick but safe manner. There's the other segments of the state regulatory agencies that are interested in the safety of the employees. So all of that will be coordinated. And have there been discussions yet about if there was a catastrophic event or if there was a mishap that went beyond the military property and went onto, you know, state property or private property, you know, how does that coordination get implemented, whether it's with HAIMA or emergency management, you know, from Honolulu? Right. All of that is being, is being planned and will be exercised. We will be ready if there is a spill. And if there's an explosion, I mean, we're looking at that too. Right. There is discussion in the plans about fire suppression. And I know you folks are reviewing a lot of the documents that the military has sent over your way. I don't know at what point you are in, in going through those, you know, because of the problems that we've had with the fire suppression system. And and I know they said there's a lot of overlay now. And they're trying to figure out how they deal with a fire. Yeah. So, you know, Fed Fire is probably involved. Department of Health the military has said they are 
not going to, they don't intend to use the AFFF system, but use a different system. However, they will repair the AFFF lines in the event they need it. But all of that, those contingencies are being looked at, not only by the Department of Health, but other other agencies that um, have direct regulatory authority over those. And the defueling plan does call for the fuel to exit, I think, over at Pearl Harbor, I think from the hotel pier. And that was a site of uh, earlier spills? Yes, but the pipelines have, have been repaired, and we will exercise the actual defueling. And that exercise will occur sometime in July. And that was Kathleen Ho, Deputy Environmental Director for the State Health Department. So there will be two opportunities next week for the public to talk directly with officials about the defueling process planned for the Red Hill underground tanks. More than 100 million gallons of fuel remains at the facility. This is The Conversation on statewide member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Now it's time for your backyard quiz. Today we're thinking of a house built in the 1920s on Hawaii's first macadamia nut farm. It was built by a man named Ernest Shelton Van Tassel, who moved to Hawaii from Massachusetts in hopes of recovering from an illness. With financial help from his aunt, Majorie Merriweather Post, Van Tassel obtained the land that is now part of Pu'ua'ula'ka'a Wayside Park, right in the heart of Mount Tanlis. The name Pu'ua'ula'ka'a means the hill of the rolling sweet potato and refers to how people utilize the shape of the land in farming. At the farm's peak production level, it stretched to 22 acres and had nearly 9,000 trees, yielding around 8,000 tons of macadamia nuts a year. Throughout the family's or the farm's history, Van Tassel lived in a simple but elegant house on the property. Today, it's been turned into a popular space for weddings and private parties. For today's Backyard Quiz, we're looking for the name of that home and the property it sits on. Call 808-941-3689 or 877-941-3689 if you know the answer. The first one to get it right gets a reusable tote bag that tells people you got it right. Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from Nairit Hawaii and its Community Giving Initiative. Learn more about how this program is supporting nonprofits focusing on affordable housing projects at nairithawaii.com. On the next Fresh Air, the story of a biracial mixed martial arts fighter battling the effects of brain trauma while trying to revive his career. It's a story about the fight game, family, racial identity, and the ravages of dementia. 
we talk with John Vercher about his novel, After the Lights Go Out. Join us. Fresh air beginning this afternoon at 3 following Science Friday. Support for The Conversation comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, whose contributors help Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk shows. Mahalo to contributor Anchor Systems Hawaii. Civil Beat has a story about building community frustration over illegal game rooms on Oahu, particularly the west side. Editor Matthew Leonard has our reality check. Good morning, Matthew. Good morning, Catherine. Thanks for having me. Yes, and so today we're talking about a story written by Jack Truesdale. Correct, yes. So Jack went out to, there was a community meeting facilitated by council member Andrea Tipola on Wednesday night. Uh, There was a lot of issues that sort of came up in the event. Ostensibly, it was also a chance for the public to um, get to meet the new vice major there, uh, HPD uh, major Mike Lambert, who is formerly from the vice and narcotics division. He's been given a kind of remit to really... uh, tackle the gambling room issue in that part of District 8 and it partly it's because we know um, because of the prevalence of these gambling rooms that they're also associated with a lot of other kind of activity from human trafficking through to illegal firearms through to drug trade so they become a kind of vortex for a whole lot of issues that you know communities really feel uh, disruptive and there's also just a sort of a, a nuisance and noise dimension to them as well because of the associated activity and they're, they're frequently cited in residential areas that are really disruptive too so that's another kind of part of that. Well, you know, uh, I, I recall that uh, HPD, you know, shut down a couple of these game rooms. It got particularly bad. I think there was a shooting in Chinatown uh, not too right. long ago. There was one just right around from our studios here. Some also got shot uh, as well. Um, so they have been, you know, putting pressure on these places to close down. So they like to point to a statistic, really, that over the last decade or so, they've really reduced the number of they've reduced the number of these. Uh, kinds of operations, you know, by by more than half. The tools that they've started to use also are are, are interesting and a little bit different. They made a couple of modifications, legal modifications, particularly um, starting to use some... um, They they targeted the employees, people who are doing, you know, cash or security within those things and kind of brought a higher level of of, um, potential charges against those people. And then they've also been using these nuisance abatement laws, which enable them to really go after the landlords of, uh, you know, the owners of these particular establishments. And, uh, you know, the result can be that those establishments get shut down for, you know, up to a year, which is obviously kind of a choke, you know, choke on the income for a prospective, you know, for a landlord. Um, you know, the, the struggle they have is just really never knowing what's the state of mind of the the landlord, you know, whether they're uh, you know, cognizant or aware of the kinds of operations that are going on in the facility. So this is a way that they're, you know, they're hoping to bring pressure on a, you know, a kind of a, 
aesthetic target, if you like, you know, the owners of the buildings. Yes, and, you know, I recall something recently, too, in Kaimuki, in a residential area, actually right around the corner from your new studios, where residents just started to complain about the noise and people hanging out, you know, at all times of the evening and comings and goings, and, and that one got shut down pretty quick. Yeah, so they, I mean, they, they they clearly can do it, and I think that um, what what Major Mike Lambert said at this meeting in Wyanai on Wednesday was really that you know previously uh, there'd been a lot of uh, activity by police there to try and shut down these establishments. Uh, they'd been going a kind for for a kind of a volume approach. Um, their goal is really to. Um, you know, to try and identify you know, the targets that they can really make a difference on in that part of in that part of uh, the, the Waianae Coast. Um, the meeting also, you know, touched on other issues which are you know serious, like youth gun violence. The father of um, Miguel Agu Jr., who died, um, uh, was shot on Makaha Beach last week. He was there and spoke out about the problem with juvenile gun violence. So, you know, often these meetings, which are ostensibly there as kind of community forums, you know, inevitably you know, bring up a whole lot of other issues that the community is very concerned about. And obviously gun violence, which, you know, actually, um, you know, is, remains a serious issue, was also on the agenda there. Right. And the story also talks about uh, a test case in, in McCulley. So uh, lots of good information there about how the uh, police uh, are really looking at different ways to go after the landlords and shut these places down. Right. And I think, you know, the same thing with the cockfighting as well that, you know, which also resulted there was a, you know, two deaths related to a cockfighting um, event uh, on that part of the coast as well. Um, these are these are ostensibly events which, you know, in and on of themselves may be, quote unquote, victimless, but um, they still, you know, also draw other kinds of activity that's, you know, heavily criminal. So. Right. Well, I love how the article uh, says that uh, uh, the uh, uh, H. HPD folks were applauded. So, <laughs> uh, but thank you so much, Matthew. You're welcome, Catherine. Anytime. That was editor Matthew Leonard with today's reality check. To read Jack Truesdale's story, visit civilbeat.org. college graduates are done with classes, yes, but for those starting their careers, the learning is not over. I think the next six months I'm going to be a super sponge and just soaking up everything. I'm Kai Rizdal, the School of Life and Work. Next time on Marketplace. Beginning this evening at six, following All Things Considered. Support for HPR comes from Costco Air Conditioning and Refrigeration, serving Hawaii since 1961, featuring Daikin Air Conditioning Systems. Listing of contractors who install Daikin products at CostcoHawaii.com.
organized crime and the dark underbelly of the 1950s Chinatown is the setting for this series for a series of novels written by local author Scott Gikawa. His latest book, Char Shu, was published a few weeks ago. It centers on the exploits of a Japanese American police detective in a time when the line between the law and the mob got very blurry. Kikawa is of Japanese descent and is a current federal law enforcement officer. He recently took some time off from his crime-fighting job to come down to our studios to talk with the conversation's Russell Subiano. You know, we see in many television shows, many movies, many books, what is it about a murder that makes it a good way to start a story where a mystery needs to be solved? I think it's because murder is the most extreme thing that any human being can do to another human being. And I think that readers or anybody has a fascination with what motivates an individual or what would drive an individual to do something that extreme to somebody else. Mm -hmm. I think there's no better attention grabber than a killing. And that usually makes the writing process a lot easier. I have a lot of friends especially at Bamboo Ridge, my publisher, which is a very renowned publisher of literary fiction and poetry, who have called me prolific. And I know they mean that as a compliment. But for me, the process of creating a lot is an easy one. It's hard for them because they're actually creating art, something beautiful. For me, it's all about figuring out where and when I want the thing, dropping a dead body in it, and then figuring out how it got there. Yeah. I think that's probably the most interesting part of these kinds of books to me is just this mystery. And so when you write a mystery, do you already have the end in mind? What do you have set already? And then what do you find along the way? I think it's a discovery process for me. I usually have an idea about setting for better lack of a term. They're all kind of set during the same era Mm -hmm. and in the same place if you consider this island or this state or this group of islands to be a single place for setting. But there's usually an event in the backdrop. For the first book, it was the uh, labor strikes of the late 1940s. For the second book, it was the House Un-American Activities Committee's investigations into communism here. And in the third book, it was the real-life HPD kickback scandal with the uh, Chinatown gambling dens. But It's all about having that backdrop and then putting a dead body in it and figuring out how it got there. And I don't usually do that in outline process. Uh, A lot of writers do. Mm -hmm. They figure out everything, especially mystery writers will figure out everything beforehand. Sometimes I do that. I've tried outlining. Uh I didn't didn't (laughs) do that with the first book because I had no idea what I was doing with the first book. Mm -hmm. It was all blundering about and trying to figure out what worked. On the second book, I tried an outline as I did with the third book, and discovered that about three-quarters of the way through, I scrapped uh, whatever ending I came up with and totally changed it. So it it, it remains a discovery process. And I know that you've done a lot of research for your book, a lot of research into Hawaii history, Hawaii crime history. What came first? Were you interested in history first, or were you a writer first? Well, both of them kind of happened at the same time. How this started was... It was actually a drunken dare. It was a bar in Kaimuki where a friend of mine, Dr. Jason Chun of UH West Oahu, who's been my friend since middle school, had to listen to me complain about the lack of quality crime fiction, especially mystery fiction set in Hawaii. And this is probably because 
there's a dearth of writers who like to set mysteries here in Hawaii who are not from here. And this ends up being a pretty backdrop for the mischief of tourists and outsiders coming in and having a cookie-cutter plot, which could have been anywhere. It could have been Singapore. It could have been Paris. You just change the background. And the plot's the same. And Jason said, rather than the complain about it, why don't you write something? So I took up the challenge. It wasn't that easy, but I did decide that part of what I wanted to do was to bring to light Hawaii's territorial history. So that time in history between the unlawful overthrow of the monarchy and annexation and today, because it hardly gets a mention in popular culture. We fortunately have a group of scholars today who are experts in this area, but in popular culture, there's barely any representation. When I was growing up, discussion on the territorial years kind of consisted of the monarchy's overthrown, the U.S. annexes Hawaii, Pearl Harbor is attacked, and here we are today. Mm -hmm. And this is kind of totally glossed over when they talk about the territorial years. But for many of us, especially those of us who are neither native Hawaiian nor Haole, the territorial years were our crucible of struggle. They were the time where we had been a colonial society and had converted right about statehood, because I think statehood was a watershed moment where we turned into the Hawaii we know today. But I think there's an interesting window of time between the end of World War II and statehood. So we're only talking a 15-year mm-hmm. period where a lot of this change took place, and that's exactly where I wanted to set my writing. We were in like a transition state that seemed pretty similar to like an emerging third world country or something like that, which I imagine kind of set the stage for crime to have a lot more power than it typically does. What do you think set the stage for crime to be so prevalent during that time? Well, it was, as you say, a time of change. A lot of what happened was immigration, especially from Asia, was basically cut off by about 1924. We had a lot of groups that arrived in the later part of the monarchy and the early part of annexation. The Chinese Exclusion Act of 1883 effectively cut off Chinese immigration to Hawaii, but only after annexation, because under the Kingdom of Hawaii, Chinese laborers continued to arrive because they weren't a part of the United States yet. When they became a part of the United States, that's when Chinese arrivals ceased to be. Japanese, Koreans, and other Asians continued to arrive until 1924, when another key immigration act also restricted their arrival. So we had a population of mostly contract laborers who became a different class because U.S. labor laws eventually said that they had to end that contract labor system. And Filipinos and Puerto Ricans came with the Spanish-American War because the labor source from Asia was otherwise cut off, and that's because the Philippines and Puerto Rico became U.S. possessions after the Spanish-American War. And what happened at that point was this population remained static for a few decades until maybe about 1952, when another major immigration act once and for all ended those exclusion acts. And we had a brand new class of immigrant from Asia at this point. They were more professional. They were shopkeepers. They were white collar But this is also true of the criminals who arrived after 1952. They're a much more sophisticated brand. They were racketeers, basically. 
criminals for profit, prostitution, narcotics, gambling, those vices that make a great deal of money uh, and that can be tapped by organized crime. So that's what set the stage for the 1950s and crime in the 1950s. I like writing about that era because I always tell people that there was a golden age of crime fiction and crime, and it is not today. Mm -hmm. This is an age before DNA, before lawsuits. Those things changed law enforcement forever, and it changed crime forever. Back then, people used to kill each other over cash. Back then, there were cases of mistaken identity, and back then, cops used to do things like beat confessions out of suspects regularly. It wasn't pretty, but I think it made for more interesting stories. The central character of your books is Japanese-American detective Francis Yoshikawa, a.k.a. Sheik. He's sort of an anti-hero of, of sorts. Much of how he operates outside the law would be, I think, considered kind of deplorable today. In this current day and age, do you think there's still demand for stories featuring main characters that kind of blur the line between hero and villain? I think that there probably is, and that comes from somebody who works in law enforcement right. today. It's because I think that in the business of crime and crime fighting, those stories are not generally very interesting anymore. Those real-life stories are not generally very interesting anymore. I think that it was important to portray a Japanese-American character in what would be considered a rogue cop role today because it's uh, atypical of the representation that group usually gets. Usually, Japanese-Americans are portrayed as very law-abiding, as very ordered characters, mm -hmm. and nothing could be further from the truth when you're talking about a general population of any group. There are always exceptions, that there are always people that act accordingly to their own personalities. And this was one such character. And it was important for me to portray somebody from that group, from my group, as different. I wasn't going to ask this question, but after talking to you and seeing how much detail and how much passion you put into your novels, would at some point in the future, would you like to see your novels on the screen somewhere? That that would be great. I've been approached by screen people, but not for my own work. They always want to ask me or to use me as a technical consultant for their own work. I think that right now there's a fascination with Hawaii organized crime of the 1970s. Mm -hmm. And they ask me questions about it because I wrote in an era which is kind of adjacent to that era. Mm -hmm. And because of my occupation, trying to accurately depict organized crime, the Nappy Palava company in its heyday, which is now the new pop culture fascination with Hawaii crime. I'd like to see something about the era that I write in on the screen, because I think it's more aesthetically pleasing for one thing. I have an aesthetic obsession with the 1950s. I think that people, men and women, never looked better or dressed better than they did in the 1950s, right. right? You could tell cars apart just by their silhouettes alone, the makes and models. And even the music was better dressed. You had Sinatra, you had Nat King Cole, you had Miles Davis and Chet Baker. It was a, a different time. People wore suits and hats and white gloves, even here in Hawaii, where it's really hot. And it was a different aesthetic. I'd love to see that brought to life on the screen, especially with the setting here 
with the architecture we have here, yep. we still have many existing examples of the architecture. But I know how these things work. If somebody came to me and wanted to buy the screen rights, it'd be one lump sum, and it would be, here, now we can do what we want with your creation because you've been paid for it. And really, maybe that's not such a bad thing. Well, thanks so much for coming in, Scott Kakawa. really enjoy talking to you. Thank you, Russell. That was local author and federal law enforcement officer Scott Kikawa talking with HBR's Russell Subiono. Kikawa says he's continuing to work on his series of novels set on Oahu during Hawaii's territorial years. He's uh, considering possibly writing a series in the popular young adult genre. Kikawa's latest crime noir novel, Charshu, is available through Bamboo Ridge Press. knows trying something new can be risky. Sometimes it's easy because it's refreshing, but sometimes it's a real breakneck kind of invasive thing, and you just never know. But he does it anyway. From orchestra arrangements and film scores to his new album, it's Ben Folds on the next World Cafe. Beginning tonight at 8, following Left, Right, and Center. Support for The Conversation comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk shows. Mahalo to contributor PCAT, Pacific Center for Advanced Technology Training. You've been waiting in eager anticipation, and now it's time to reveal the answer to today's Backyard Quiz. Earlier in the show, we told you about a two-bedroom bungalow nestled in the lush greenery uh, up on Tantalus. Originally designed by Hartwood during the golden age of Hawaiian architecture, it was built on Hawaii's first macadamia farm in 1925. At At one time, it became a private getaway for celebrities vacationing in the islands. Uh, People like Elvis Presley, Marilyn Monroe, and Clark Gable. The home fell into disrepair after owner Ernest Shelton Van Tassel's death in the 1940s. The founder of the company, uh, Crazy Shirts, later acquired the lease and partnered with the uh, Department of Land and Natural Resources to transform the property back to its former grandeur. After 30 years, the Department of Land and Natural Resources began looking for ways to monetize the property. Today, it is known as Nutridge Estate, which is the answer to today's backyard quiz. It's become a popular venue to host weddings, luau's, and other private events. And our winner, Kim Isak, is from Tantalus, so this is her backyard. She had the fastest fingers. Uh, But we can also share that the nephew of Van Tassel also called in. He knew the story. Uh, that's our quiz today. If you have a, an idea for one, send it to talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. Halau Nohona Hawaii is a Hawaiian cultural organization located all the way on the other side of the country in Silver Spring, Maryland. It offers hula, oli, olelo Hawaii, and Hawaiian arts and crafts classes to the Washington, D.C. community. The organization was recently profiled by WAMU, American University Radio, a public radio station in our nation's capital. Take a listen. 
Despite being far from their native land, this Hawaiian dance group is creating a sense of home in the D.C. region. WAMU's Hector Alejandro Arzate reports. Amber Maikui might be more than 4,000 miles away from her hometown of Honolulu, but she says she feels right at home whenever she gets to perform hula with her daughter. Finding this group, it was like finding home again. Maikui grew up on Oahu, but says her career in the U.S. Army took her all over, including the D.C. region. When her active duty service ended, she and her family moved back to Hawaii, but it wasn't long before they resettled in Maryland. It always felt like something was missing. Ever since, the mother-daughter duo, at the request of Maikui's own mother, have been practicing with Halau Nahona Hawaii, a native Hawaiian cultural organization based in Silver Spring. It warms my soul when we come to Halau every Sunday. I just love to feel the music. It just makes me very happy. The Halau, or school, was co-founded by Kaimana Chi in 2014 and provides weekly classes in hula, music, and singing. Chi first started performing at the age of six and was eventually given the title of Kumu, which means teacher. Now, he says it's his life's commitment to honor and pass on those traditions, especially in the local community. Uh, no matter where I am in the world, I want to share aloha, I want to share a little bit about Hawaii, because there's so, so many misconceptions. You know, I've always felt that, you know, I need to be a perpetuator and a, and a sharer of Hawaiian culture. Maikui's daughter, Zaley Tiller, says on the mainland, it can sometimes be hard to find people who share her native Hawaiian identity, something both she and her family don't want to lose. I get to connect with people that are the same that have the same culture as me, and it's a way for me to connect to home from far away. So. In honor of Asian American, Native Hawaiian, and Pacific Islander heritage this month, Halau Nahona Hawaii held a hoike, or performance, at the auditorium of Northwood High School in Silver Spring on Saturday, accompanied by the sounds of live guitar, ukulele, and ipu, a percussion instrument made from a gourd, the group wanted to highlight the history of hula, which was once outlawed in Hawaii. The group performed Lili Ue, which was dedicated to the last sovereign monarch, Queen Lili Kalani, before she was overthrown in 1893 and the islands annexed by the U.S. just a few years later. Isaac Ho'opi'i, who was born in Oahu and came to Virginia through his service in the U.S. Army, says he gets to share performances in the Halau with his children and grandchildren. For Ho'opi'i, that's especially meaningful to perpetuating his culture for the generations to come. My kids and their kids are dancing, then hopefully, you know, pass the torch to the young ones that can still carry on the tradition of uh, sharing the Hawaiian music or the Hawaiian um, spirit. It's not just Native Hawaiians who are part of Halau Nohona Hawaii. The group also has a number of members from other cultural backgrounds who care deeply about Hawaiian heritage, including Samoans, Filipinos, and even white Americans. For Ho'opi'i, that's a good thing. Not only being a native, Hawaiian from Hawaii, but seeing all the different cultures coming together, learning uh, how to share that all is awesome. Doreen Barker, who is part Samoan and Filipino, was born and raised in Hawaii before moving to Virginia. While it's been hard being away from her home, she says Halau Nahona Hawaii has made it that much easier. She even gets to perform alongside her son. Finding Halau was one of the best things I could find here because I was getting very homesick. And we were ready to move back home or um, move to the West Coast, but I found Halau and now I feel like I'm at home. For WAMU, I'm Hector Alejandro Arzate.
Kaimana Chi is the co-founder for Halau Nohono Hawaii. He was born and raised on Oahu's North Shore and attended Kahuku High School. He started dancing hula at age six and over the years studied under several prominent Hawaiian kumuhula and participated in the Merry Monarch Festival. In 2009, he was given the title of kumu. Chi started Halau Nohono Hawaii in 2014 after moving to the D.C. area in 2008. The Conversations Russell Subiano talked with Chi this morning about the impact that his organization is making. Since the airing of the WAMU story, have you seen a peak in interest in your organization? Absolutely. We're so lucky that WAMU sent you know reporters to cover our Hoike 2023. And since then, I mean, first of all, there's been just an outpouring of love and aloha from from the islands once the NPR posted the interview on their national Facebook page. And then we've received so many inquiries on how do we become a part of the organization? How do we join HALO next term? How can we donate? So it's really been this amazing opportunity, you know, for our for our HALO to, you know, get some attention. I grew up on the Big Island, and then I moved to Denver, and I lived there for 15 years. My dad had two brothers and two cousins and their families who lived there. I know how important it is to have that Hawaiian community to be part of. How have you seen your organization be a connection point for Hawaiians and people who love Hawaii in the D.C. region? Uh, So DMV is such a unique place when you think of it as it's, you know, the capital area of the U.S., but there's, you know, every branch of military here. There's tons of amazing higher education institutions. So in this area, we do get a lot of Hawaiian transplants, right? People that grew up in Hawaii have come here because of the military, come here because of government, or come here and went through schooling and then ended up finding residence here. And what we found is that, you know, Halau Nohona Hawaii has provided this sort of community within our community for Hawaiians, people who love Hawaii, people who have visited one time and have become enamored and enveloped by the culture, and then people who generations ago, they had family live in Hawaii, and then they've grown up on the continent um, and wanted to reconnect with Hawaiian culture. So we've provided sort of that outlet, you know, and everybody's a little bit of different reasons here and there. But all in all, we're providing this outlet and this community for, you know, for Hawaiians and and non-Hawaiians alike to come together and to celebrate, to perpetuate, to learn about Hawaii, Hawaiian culture, hula, oli, mele, and olelo. And when you started your halau in, in 2014, did you intend to be this community organization or did it kind of just happen that way? I think it evolved. It, it evolved that way. You know, being in the D.C. region again, the you know the the nonprofit sort of organizational presence here is big, and you know, not all halal in Hawaii end up being a not for profit. But we found that this would be a great way for us to to pursue more resources, to have better opportunities for outreach into the community. I had planned for. I just wanted to teach hula. I'm going to be perfectly clear because I grew up with hula and it's been sort of a touchstone throughout my whole life. I didn't foresee it becoming such a sanctuary, a cultural sanctuary for people in the DMV. I mean, we have students that travel 
I mean, all the way from Pennsylvania all the way to middle of central Virginia. So the, the geographical span of our student base is well over a few hundred miles. Wow. I know we're seeing a surge in Hawaii stories being told by Hawaiians on national platforms. And it seems like slowly but surely, you know, our history and customs and traditions are becoming better understood by the rest of the country and maybe even the, the rest of the world. How have you seen your organization contribute to the education of our culture to outsiders? You know, Ursula, that's funny you ask because we just returned home. The end of April, beginning of May, Halau Nohonawai was invited to perform in Singapore at the Tapestry of Sacred Music Festival. And it's a a festival which um, solicits cultural and native organizations from all over the world to assemble in Singapore to perform very traditional dances or music. So we had this amazing opportunity just about a month ago to share hula kahiko and oli with hundreds of people, if not thousands, in Singapore, and then also sort of fellowship with other cultural organizations, with other dance groups, with other traditional and authentic indigenous groups from around the world. And what was the biggest surprise or or the takeaway was how enamored, how enveloped, how appreciative the international crowd was. They truly felt they were seeing hula and our culture, not through the lens of the commercial or through the, through the lens of the television, right? Not grass skirts, coconut bras, and glitter, but they were seeing and experiencing more traditional sense of our cultural art. Yeah, the world has this, you know, this stereotype of us. And for organizations like yours to travel around the country, around the world, and share what our traditions and our and our culture really is, I, I think that's that's really impactful. And I know for myself, you know, living in Denver, you know, starting a family there, you know, having you know having my family get-togethers and and teaching my kids how to dance and how to sing and, and as much as we could about their their traditions, it was still kind of a challenge for us to, you know, really plant deep the cultural seed in, in our kids. What's been the biggest challenge to being as authentically Hawaiian as possible in a place that's so far away from Hawaii? It is, you know, having a halal on on the continent, I, I say, or in the mainland, you know, you when you grow up with hula and you grow up in a traditional halal at home, you know, they're just unsaid rules, right? There's this respect for your kumuhula and and for the art. And, you know, even if you don't grow up dancing hula, you still kind of sort of just develop this cultural understanding. And I think what's different about being here is that a lot of people have never experienced being in a halal before. And so, you know, my team and I, my alaka'i and myself, we cannot make those assumptions that people know, right? that people know how to take on and take off their pa'u or how to address the kumu or how to, you know, how to be pono in class. So I think that's definitely one of the major challenges is ensuring that we provide instruction even when we think that or assume that things are already known and, and taught and learned from just generations of living in Hawaii. 
I think the other one is is that you know I grew up in a hula environment where nothing was written down, so everything was passed on orally, which is most common. And now, you know, I use tools like Google Drive and and video, and you know, I compile our hula library, our oli library, and music library in the cloud, so that our haumana can access those resources and practice at home. Now, we didn't have Google Drive growing up, and right. we didn't have a video camera to video the hula and then practice at home, right? Right, right. Everything had to be learned and memorized. So I think those are the two things, right? Leveraging modern technology to and, and, and then still being authentic, and then also providing, you know, enough information so that we don't take things for granted on what, what people know and, and don't know about hula. As you share our culture and way of life with the people of the DMV, what do you hope they take away? I, I hope that they take away aloha. I mean, it, it comes down to that just a simple thing. All of this is to be a catalyst, a mechanism to share aloha because it's something only we have. You know, or, or something that we have that the rest of the world should have. And I think that that's my probably my underlying, my primary, my mission that I've taken on since I was a kid. I mean, an exchange student internationally, and I always felt like, wow, I want to share this special thing we have, this aloha with the world. Yeah, I feel the same way, man. Thanks so much, Kaimana. Really appreciate you taking the time to talk story with me. Uh, mahalo, Russell. You have a wonderful day. That was Hello, Nohona Hawaii's Kaimana Chi, talking with HBR's Russell Subiono. You may or may not know, but Chi is uh, also an accomplished chef. He's won several awards and appeared in several television cooking shows, including Cutthroat Kitchen, which he won in 2016. He's currently the head chef at a Maryland eatery called Uncle's Hawaiian Grinds. We'll have a link to more information about that Silver Springs Halau on the conversation page of our website later today. That is it for this Aloha Friday. Coming up next week, got travel on your mind this summer. Pack your patience and plan ahead. Want to listen back to something you heard on our program? Sign up for the Conversation Podcast on Spotify, Apple, or anywhere else you tune in. Our program is produced by Russell Subiono, Lillian Song, and Stephanie Hahn. John DeMello produced our Backyard Quiz Oli, and our theme music is thanks to Gypsy 808. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us on Monday. Pick up the conversation.